Writing is not only the stuff of which history is made, it is also a valuable subject of historical inquiry in its own right. By considering the uses, values of meanings of writing in past societies, we can make better sense of why the historical record takes it sh the shape it does. I want to talk tonight about the individuals and communities who wrote in cuneiform script on clay tablets some 5,000 to 2,000 years ago in and around the modern-day state of Iraq. Who learned to write cuneiform? How, why and where did they do so? How have these ancient literati shaped our view of the first half of history? This evening I shall tackle the question using a couple of case studies from my work over the past 20 years or so. Devotees of the goddess Nisaba in the early 2nd millennium BC in the city of Nippur, who wrote mostly in the Sumerian language, and Assyrian followers of the god Nabu in the 9th to 7th centuries BC. And they went to want to spend some time thinking about the present day. But first, I shall indulge in some retrospection. Writing an inaugural is a bit like writing one's own obituary, I have found. <laughs> but luckily, I'm not dead yet, though nearly was at the weekend. It's a good opportunity to reflect on my life and career over the past quarter century and to pay a few debts of gratitude to some of the people who have helped me get here. I am an ancient historian, I think, for three fundamental reasons. First, because I'm an awkward so-and-so who wants to go back to first principles to, ha to establish how and why things work. Second, because I'm incorrigibly nosy. And third, because I was a rather lazy undergraduate. I originally studied mathematics at university in order to become a theoretical, phys theoretical physicist, I thought, to better understand the fundamental particles from which the universe is made. But in my final year as an undergraduate at the University of Warwick in the late 80s, I took a history of mathematics class solely because I thought it would be an easier option than real maths. <laughs> so, to get full skive potential out of it, I volunteered to give one of the first of the compulsory student presentations so that I could then doss around for the rest of the year. Fate assigned me Babylonian mathematics. Within a week of the library, I was in love, and I'm still living with the consequences. My inspirational teacher on that course, David Fowler, enabled me to see that mathematics is not simply a set of rules for defining the physical world. It is, and always has been, deeply social. Its history is not, or shouldn't be, a triumphal retelling of correct discoveries the accumulation of fact upon fact. Rather, it is the exploration of the different ways that individuals have come to create those facts and to convince or fail to convince other people that they are true. Different strategies, different truths have prevailed in different times and places and in different social contexts. And this phenomenon is particularly noticeable if you stand as far back as possible. So in my case, from the vantage point of southern Iraq millennia ago. Now, this was a revelation in my late teens, and I would have struggled to articulate it then, but I had not had the benefit of a decade working with people like Jim, so nice to see you here, at Cambridge's Department of History and Philosophy of Science. <coughs> and when I moved there from Oxford in 2004, and I will come back to Oxford, there were inspirational and influential colleagues around me, like Martin Cush, Peter Lipton, Geoffrey Lloyd, Simon Schaffer, and Jim Secord, who gave me the intellectual framework and vocabulary to articulate what I had been fumbling towards for years. So now, I would say, history, or at least my kind of history, is fundamentally about the articulation of social relationships between people and other people, between people and things, 
between people and the world around them. There was a fashion a few years ago to write books about the history of commodities, of salt, for instance, or cod. Now, there's a very thin history of those things to be written about them on their own, because after all, cod just swim around, eat, shit, reproduce, and die, no? But if we add in the human, the social, then it becomes interesting. How have people hunted, eaten, preserved, and conserved fish, but not, for instance, worshipped them or kept them as pets? So, good, rich, <coughs> meaningful history of mathematics performs similar moves too. It investigates how people decide what mathematics consists of, what it is good for, and how it should be done. That, in essence, was my mission in writing Mathematics in Ancient Iraq, a project which took up much of the early 2000s and which has just come out in Arabic translation, which I'm very proud of. Similar uh, ideas were afoot when I worked with my lovely friend Jackie Steddall on the Oxford Handbook of History of Mathematics a few years ago. And just as, she, um, just as she passed away a few months ago, that book came out in Japanese as well, so I'm feeling very cosmopolitan about that. But you came here for gods and goddesses and ancient writing, not for cod and equations. So although it took me several years to make the intellectual journey from um, mathematics to um, what I want to talk about now, I won't take up all that time for you. Let's speed ahead. The link is... If we're interested, as I am, in how people think and how they make sense of the world around them, then we need to take seriously the ways in which they themselves construct knowledge, rather than impose our own categories on them. That means, to some extent, putting aside modern genre designations such as mathematics, literature, science, divination. Instead, we need to learn how to read with our historical subjects, looking across the whole range of texts they consumed, edited, wrote and taught. That means trying to reconstruct textual communities in two senses. The ways in which texts relate to each other and the ways in which people relate to each other and to the world through texts. Both texts and people exist in very particular places in the world, of course, and those places impact them on them in very particular ways. This, as you'll see, is what I mean by social geographies. So, without further ado, let's turn the clock back to the early second millennium BC nearly 4,000 years ago. This is by no means the beginning of history, of course. By this time, some urban communities in southern Iraq and its neighbours had been literate and numerate for well over a 1,000 years. Their primary choice of writing material was sun-dried clay, impressed with a reed stylus, which meant that even intendedly ephemeral writings could potentially endure for millennia. Fantastic news for ancient historians. Conversely, the cuneiform script had become challengingly complex since its evolution from, the late, from a late 4th millennium accounting tool. It was now able to represent two entirely unrelated languages, the li linguistic isolate Sumerian and Akkadian, an indirect ancestor of Hebrew, Aramaic and Arabic. This meant that there were, and still are, high barriers to learning and utilising it to full effect. But where historians have often seen this complexity as an annoying impediment to accessing the writings and ideas of the ancient past, for me it is a fascinating and important phenomenon in its own right. I began to branch out from Babylonian mathematics as a postdoc in Oxford in the late 90s. With my former DPhil supervisor Jeremy Black, I set up the Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature, Etzel to its friends, a pioneering and often very homemade attempt 
produce a consistently edited, open access, digital library of the world's oldest myths, epic hymn, epics, hymns and proverbs. And I'm delighted to see John Taylor here, who wasn't in the first wave of the Etzel gang, but joined us later. So hello, John. Welcome. At the same time, I had a British Academy postdoctoral fellowship at Wilson College to investigate the archaeological and textual evidence for scribal training in the Old Babylonian period, the early 2nd millennium BC. My primary aim was to contextualise Babylonian mathematics, to begin to understand why and how it took the form it did, and to find out who had been producing it. Luckily for me, Nick and Steve were working on similar questions at much the same time, about scribal writing exercises and Sumerian literature, respectively. Nick and Steve became some of my closest and most stimulating colleagues and friends, and absolutely essential honorary members of the Etzel team. So we'll hear more from them at the end. Um, so, but what I'm about to tell you is based as much on their work and the Etzel team as it is on my own personal research. So about halfway between modern Baghdad and the ancient Gulf Coast line, the city of Nippur was a major centre of early Mesopotamian scribal culture. It was dominated by the enormous ziggurat or temple tower of the great god Enlil, but also boasted temples to his son, the warrior god Ninurta, Inanna or Ishtar, the goddess of sex and war, and Utu or Shamash, the sun god and the god of justice. Just a few hundred metres south of the main temple complex was an area that late 19th century excavators dubbed Tablet Hill for the density of cuneiform tablets found there, <coughs> and which, when archaeologists revisited after the Second World War, turned out to be a neighbourhood of densely packed urban dwellings, occupied from at least the 21st century to the 18th century BC. Each house typically contained the remnants of domestic pottery and furnishings, plus a few dozen legal documents which recorded land sales, loans, wills, dowries, and adoptions and the like. House F, as the archaeologists called it, was in many ways no different. An unassuming little terraced house, no more than about 40 metres square, with a courtyard, kitchen and side room at the front, and a larger family room at the back. But as well as the usual kitchenware, a small collection of household records, and even the, the remains of a board game, in 1951, its, ex its American excavators covered nearly 1,500 fragments of cuneiform tablets in its rooms. Some even used as construction materials for the built-in benches and boxes found there. Over the following half century, many Sumerologists studied these fragments as manuscript sources for individual literary works and scribal exercises but no one tried to make sense of the whole. Nevertheless, in 1987, Elizabeth Stone pointed out that they were almost certainly the remains of a scribal school, abandoned when the city was occupied by invading forces in 1739. So let's now attempt a social geography with, with what they discovered. The mid-18th century BC comprises the last years of the great unifying king of Babylonia, Hammurabi, who conquered the city of Nippur in 1763, and the first decade of his son and successor, Samsuiluna, who briefly lost the city to Rimsin II of Lhasa in 1739. As Elizabeth Stone in Nippur neighbourhoods in 87 argued, that conflict brought major social change to the city. Established temple elites fled, and the urban order was rapidly disrupted. We can't be sure, entirely sure who lived in House F during the peaceful pre-war decades, but some of the legal documents found there suggest one possibility, a man named Ubar Baba or Ubar Bao. 
1769, so before Hammurabi conquered, he had divided up responsibility for offerings in the, in the main temple to the uh, deus of the god Ninurta and to the throne of Inanna with two other men, possibly his brothers. And then nearly half a century later, his own sons, Ninurtarim Ili and Ishtar Kima Ili, named after his main deities, exchanged houses with each other. And Stone argues that one of those houses was House F. But if Stone is right, and Ninurtarim Ili moved into House F in 1721, there's actually no reason to suppose that his, his father had lived there before its temporary abandonment in 1739. Ninurtarim Ili might well have brought his father's tablets with him from some other house. But whether or not Urbaba is our man, our owner of the house, as a property owner with rights to temple activities and income, whoops, he fits the social profile we might expect because we have a good parallel from the city of Sippar to the north of Babylon, a few hundred miles away, about a hundred years later. Here, as Michel Torre has shown, the chief lamentation priest, Enana Mansum, arranged for his son and eventual successor in the priesthood, Ur-Utu, to be educated in the basics of cuneiform literacy. The man he hired to do this was a scribe called Shumum Lisi, who fitted it in around other piecework commissions of writing tablets. But in reality, of course, we know nothing at all about the exact identities of the people, probably children, teenagers, young adults, who learnt to write in House F in Nippur. But it is highly likely that they were the sons, perhaps also daughters, as in Sippar, of Urbaba and or his neighbours, or just possibly people who had come from further afield for training. There was simply not room in the house for more than a few people at a time, so this wasn't a large scribal establishment. Amongst all the hundreds of surviving exercise tablets, only one is signed by its copyist, a name that possibly reads Er Leitum. This name, with a slightly different spelling of El Leitum, appears as a witness in three legal documents dating to the decade immediately after the school stopped functioning, at the point when new money was buying its way into influence and power in Nippur. El Leitum was a contemporary then of Obaba's sons, a Gudu priest of the goddess Ninlil, and an associate of a man named Atta, who lived near House F, in a place the archaeologists called TB House O, a few hundred metres away. So Atta bought and sold offices in the temple of the sun god Utu in Nippur, in the post-invasion period of the 1730s. So all of these men, Urbaba's sons, uh, El Letum and um, Atta, were able to um, capitalise on the... On the, on the the flight of the former elites. So all in all, it's reasonable to suppose that House F offered education to the offspring of families whose men performed duties in and earned income from the great temples in the centre of the city. But what did that education consist of? As Nick showed in his 1996 PhD, Elementary Education in Nippur, Teaching, unsurprisingly, started with the basic sign-writing exercises, then moved on to nouns and names and phrases. The third phase consisted of more technical studies of the complexities of cuneiform writing, measurement systems and numeration, and then built up whole sentences and short texts in the form of model legal documents and proverbs. But this was a shared pedagogical repertoire rather than a fixed curriculum. Comparing the House F assemblage with tablets found elsewhere on Nippur's Tablet Hill, I was able to show that it was clear variation in which exercises teachers chose to use and in which order to teach them in. 
And that variation is even more marked when we compare with other cities such as Ur and Sippar. Nevertheless, the irritatingly anachronistic phrase, Old Babylonian Curriculum, still gets bandied around in the literature, as if it had been regulated by an 18th century Michael Gove. <laughs> the whole business of learning was carried out through repeated copying, memorization, and repetition, stringing newly learned passages onto what had already been absorbed. As my Cambridge colleagues later enabled me to see, this is a very Foucauldian, and indeed Govian, disciplining into obedience through just absorbing the facts. The aim of this rote learning of set texts was, paradoxically, to create a body of knowledge about literacy that existed in the mind, in the brain, in the body, rather than on clay. The 700 or so surviving fragments of elementary exercises from House F are, in fact, the ephemeral byproducts of this process, by and large, that happen to survive only because, instead of being thrown back into one of the purpose-built recycling bins in the house, they were repurposed for repairs and improvements to the building. Now, many scribal students, like Er Utu in Sippar, must have dropped out of education as soon as they had acquired enough numeracy and literacy to keep an eye on the scribes they employed to manage their estates and archives, or to begin producing such documents themselves. Others, though, with more aptitude, more need, or possibly from scribal families, continued onto a secondary level that focused on calculation and the learning of literary Sumerian. Practice in calculation finally freed the students from rote memorization, though the incidence of wrong answers amongst the surviving exercises shows that this freedom did not always promote success. The mathematical repertoire focused on the relationships between lines and areas, finding the numerical va values of unknown quantities, and um, thinking about land and uh, agricultural labor. It embodied the abstract principles of land measurement and labor calculation, an extreme form of precisely the numerate and measurement skills a typical legal scribe or land surveyor needed in their working life. Likewise, the 80-odd Sumerian literary works found in House F also did more than teach the vocabulary and diction of poetic language. At first sight, they're no more than a random sample of the four or five hundred works of Sumerian literature that we know from the Old Babylonian period and that got edited into the Etzel corpus. Myths of the gods, epics of culture heroes like Gilgamesh, hymns to deities and long-dead kings, humorous dialogues, disputes and fables featuring anthropomorphized objects, talking animals and silly schoolboys. Some were copied again and again in House F, with up to 20 manuscripts surviving, others just once or twice. However, what made them particularly suitable for scribal teaching was that they mention writing, counting and measuring, and the tools for performing these actions, an average of 10 times as frequently as the rest of the Etzel Sumerian literary corpus. Furthermore, as Steve showed in his seminal article on the uh, scholarly um, pedagogical works that he called the Decad and the Tetrad in 1999, they were used in several distinct pedagogical clusters. Each of those clusters sent a distinct moral message about the origins and values of cuneiform numeracy and literacy to the students who studied them. At risk of oversimplification, the four short, simple hymns of the introductory Tetrad bridge the elementary and secondary curriculum. Together, they present a clear picture of good kings administering justice by, leans, by means of literate and numerate, numerate skills bestowed on them by the wise and glamorous goddess Nisaba. 
The most frequently attested curricular compositions in Steve's Decad and my House F14 maintain the focus on Nisiba and the king she supports, but also explore the role of the working scribe, ideally anonymous, obedient, efficient, and ready to pass on the same values to the next generation. The other, less frequently used compositions in House F strongly reinforce the central role of goddesses and their heavenly equipment in the construction of literacy and numeracy, in the role and the service of domesticity and social justice. So who was Nisiba, and why did she and other goddesses feature so prominently in the moral messages presented to trainee scribes? Nisiba first appears in the mid-third millennium BC, the deification of grain, harvests, and agricultural fertility. Her cult centre was in a city of Eresh, perhaps the modern archaeological site of Abu Salabih, but we really haven't, don't know exactly. Her temple was called Mulmul or Ezagin, House of Stars, or Lapis Lazuli House. In the 24th century BC, she appears in literary texts, offering lists and personal names, both at Abu Salabih and at nearby Shurapak. Lugal Zagaze, king of nearby Umar, called himself her Lumach priest, as you can see here. By the second, 22nd century, Gudea, king of Lagash, dedicated a statue to her. In the 21st century BC, the so-called Earth III period, we can see her receiving offerings in Umar and in the Temple of Nippur, where she is worshipped as the great god Enlil's mother-in-law. But by the time the turn of the second millennium, Eresh had been abandoned, and Nisiba had largely disappeared from the real world. In the process, she had transformed from the personification of abundant grain to its glamorous administrator, equipped with lapis lazuli measuring equipment and a golden stylus. Other goddesses acquired them too, her mother Nanshe, her daughter Ninlil, even the imperious Inanna, as literate numeracy became an integral element of the way that female deity was conceptualised. Her new residence up there in the, in the imaginary world was Nisiba's House of Wisdom, Eingestug Nisiba, a purely literary construct which epitomised the ideal scribal academy. The only offerings she now received were the apprentice's exercises, written all over Babylonia, dedicated to her with the closing line, Nisiba Zami, to Nisiba be praise. So, on the one hand, the physical world of the trainee scribes of House F in 18th century Nippur was probably quite constrained, tightly centred on their neighbourhood community and the nearby temple, temples. There's little evidence in their household records for travel or contact much further afield. And as Elizabeth Stone argued, in the 1760s to 40s, that little world was heavily patrilineal and traditional. But the War of 1739 scattered the old order to the winds, and with it, the comforting worldview of the scribes as industrious upholders of royally sanctioned social justice. Incomers and the already wealthy brought up land and property in Nippur on the cheap. And in the absence of a city judicial system that didn't reassert itself into 1730, there was little that the uh, lower orders could do about that. Even, even then, when normality was eventually re-established, it lasted only a decade before Nippur was definitively conquered by Ilima Ilum, the southern Sealand dynasty, and our, uh, the uh, historical record um, comes to a, a, a long stop in Nippur. On the other hand, Nippur scribes were also surely aware that they were part of a much wider community of cuneiform literati, with a common core of moral and professional values, 
propagated through a shared textual repertoire and a shared understanding of its divinely bestowed purpose for social good. Nisiba was the divine construct of those ideals. And so, as the scribal community lost its standing and purpose as the Babylonian state collapsed over the 17th century BC, then she too lost her power and meaning. For our second case study, let's move forward in time to the Assyrian cities of Kalhu and Nineveh in the 9th to 7th centuries BC on the one hand, and to the past few years of my research on the other hand. I can't quite remember when Anik and Steve started to develop ORAC, but I joined them in 2007. It wasn't called ORAC then, it became ORAC in 2010. But I joined them in 2007 with funding for two projects. Grand old £5,000 from the Higher Education Academy for me, Karen Radner, who unfortunately is on her way to Doha right now, and Ruth Horry, who is here. Hello, Ruth. To build um, a website that many of you know, Knowledge and Power in the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and to start getting the huge corpus, the State Archives of Assyria, Assyria online. That was ORAC's first major project. At the same time, I had a much larger grant from the AHRC, which I co-managed with Steve, for a research project on the geography of knowledge in Assyria and Babylonia, which featured a, featured a cast of hundreds, or so it seems now, and which ran into, uh, in Cambridge until the end of 2012. So once again, this story comes out of a very large group effort. Our starting point is an altogether grander building than House F, the temple of the wise god Nabu in the Assyrian city of Kalhu, modern Nimrud, on the Tigris River in northern Iraq. When King Ashurnasirpal II made Kalhu his new residence city in around 880 BC, he started by building a substantial new palace on the northwest edge of the citadel, with several temples clustered immediately to the north. Nabu's temple was one of the last to be built on the Royal Mound, and not in the palace quarter, but several hundred metres to the southeast. And as you'll see, I think this is significant. Over the course of its 250-year history, until the fall of the Assyrian Empire in the late 7th century BC, the temple acquired a significant collection of scholarly writings and votive offerings. The buildings and the objects in it were excavated by a British team in 1956, in fact, here at the Institute of Archaeology, just five years after the Americans were at House F. And its collection of scholarly tablets was published in preliminary form by uh, my former DPhil supervisor, Jeremy Black, and some colleagues in 96. The GCAB team in Cambridge re-edited much of it in, late in the late 2000s. Together, the building, the artifacts, the text, enable us to construct the life and death and social geography of the temple and its textual community. Ashurnasirpal, like all Assyrian kings, had a retinue of cuneiform literate scholarly advisors who communed with the gods on his behalf, read omens and other divine messages, and helped him reach important decisions about political appointments, military tactics, and diplomatic manoeuvres. These scholars helped him triangulate the demands of political governors, military officers, and other members of the royal family. They were supported by a deep bank of learned literacy acquired through years of study, as well as acute psychological acumen in managing all these highly strong and difficult people. Ashurnasirpal's most senior advisors were Isaran Mudamik, an Ashipu healer, and his Umanu, Uma, or master scholar, Gabu Ilani Eresh. Both men sired scholarly dynasties who were to serve the kings of Assyria for generations to come. 
We can trace Isaran Mudamik's family through four generations of royal Arshipus and Omanu scholars to the early 8th century BC. Interestingly, over the course of that period, they erased their origins in Babylonia and became true-bred proper Assyrians. Gabru Elani Erish's descendants, we don't know where they came from originally, but they long outstripped their colleagues or possibly rivals in kingly favour. And Gabru Elani Erish men were still at court under Ashurbanipal in the mid-7th century BC. In order for this intimate relationship of trust between king and scholar to work, it had to be based on a fine social balance. Neither king nor scholar could afford for the relationship to go stale or sour. Too much was at stake. The scholars were not the king's employees, no idleness through tenure, no sycophancy through dependency. Rather, the king bestowed patronage gifts of land, clothing and conspicuous marks of favour, in exchange for the scholars' expertise and confidentiality. And here's a letter from someone complaining where that, when that patronage gift has been um, ripped off of him by another member of the royal court. As we shall see, these scholars didn't live in the king's pocket either. They pursued their own agendas, coming to the king when summoned. Their primary base, their writing suggests, and I want to argue, was Nabu's temple Azida, the true house in Calhoun. So, what's the evidence for my claim? First, although the temple was built and re repaired several times over the course of its 250 years life, no king ever set up a foundation inscription there. And no king after Ashurnasirpal ever claimed it as a royal project. To be sure, later kings constructed imitations of Ezida. A century later, Adad-Nirari III built a temple to Nabu in Nineveh in the 780s BC. And Sargon II built a most magnificent Ezida, you can see it reconstructed here, right next to his palace in, the, in his new foundation, Dor Sharukin, in 713. And poor little Sin Sharu Ishkun, child king of the dying empire in the late 7th century, managed to finally give Nabu his own home in Ashur, the ancestral seat of Assyria, in about 627. But back in Kalhu, Nabu's original Assyrian temple features only the votive inscriptions of magnates, bureaucrats and scholars, the literate backbone of empire. The most magnificent of these votive objects are the twin statues of gods who guarded Nabu's inner sanctum. They were commissioned by the governor of Kalhu, one Baal Tatsi Iluma, whose official residence was right opposite Ezida's main entrance. Baal Tatsi Iluma dedicated the statues to the life of Adad Narari, the king, and his mother, Samu Ramat. I think perhaps this was to give thanks to the fact that the king had chosen him as his year name official for the year 797 BC. The inscription ends, as you can see, whoever you are after me, trust in Nabu, do not trust in another god. Similarly, Baal Tatsi Iluma's personal seal, found on many tablets uh, in, in the governor's residence, was inscribed, I have entrusted in you, let me not be put to shame, O Nabu. And he was not the only senior court official with a particular affinity for the god of wisdom, as you can see from this list of 8th century votive offerings found in the temple. Although the temple of Ninurta, the, the warrior god, has also been excavated in Kalhu, no similar objects have been found there. These things are a particular feature of the literate elite's relationship with Nabu. And then, of course, there are the scholarly tablets themselves. 
found in the room immediately opposite Nabu's shrine, so that when his doors were open, he could gaze directly on the accumulated wisdom of his scholars. Only some 240 tablets were found in situ in 1956, the meagre and often badly damaged remains of what must have been a much more substantial holdings in the temple's heyday. Fully half of the tablets are omens, incantations and rituals for advising the Assyrian king on political decision-making and for helping maintain the relationship with the gods. A further quarter comprise hymns and lexical works, while the majority of the re remainder consists of medical, literary and calendrical writings. Thirty still carry traces of colophons, the cuneiform equivalent of a book plate. Where we can read the names of the owners or copyists, all but one of them are descendants of Isaran Mudamik or Gabu Ilani Eresh. Only one other man is named, a certain Banunu, a 7th century Ashipu healer, who conspicuously has no family at all, a eunuch perhaps. So as you can see, the Gabu Ilani Eresh man, men were still depositing tablets here in Ezida long after the royal family had abandoned Kalhu. First for Dorgan, Sargon's new Dorsharukane in the late 8th century, and then, in pretty short order, after Sargon's death in 705, to Nineveh. But scholarly tablets were just as mobile as the scholars themselves, of course. Both were subject to systematic removal, first to Dur-Sharukin, and then hurriedly back again. For instance, in preparation for that, for that move to Dur-Sharukin, Sargon's palace scribe, one Nabu Kabdi Ahishu, brought land near Dur-Sharukin, recorded in a legal document drawn up in Kalhu, as you can see here. And then at least three of his scholarly tablets from his personal collection, incantations and lamentations, all of them, eventually found their way to the Azida in Nineveh. So we have movements of people and tablets around the place. And more famously, although the scholar Nabu Zukup Kainu, one of the descendants of Gabu Ilani Eresh, resisted the upheaval to Dor Sharikin, or perhaps was not summoned there, the 40-odd beautiful and important tablets that he wrote while sidelined in Kalhu also eventually ended up in Nineveh. So that might well explain what, one of the reasons why the surviving uh, stock of tablets in Kalhu is depleted. Nevertheless, the 7th century correspondence of the Gabu Ilani Eresh men, written to kings Isahaddon and Ashurbanipal in Nineveh, also show that while the scholars and their writings moved around as a matter of course, they gravitated to Kalhu and to Ezida as their home base. Marduk Shakinshumi goes home to consult tablets in preparation for a healing ritual for the Queen Mother. Adad Shumu'utsu richly cleanses Ezida of a fungus infestation. And nice, rather nicely, we have um, fungus omens in the temple collection. He probably also sends at least some of his letters and celestial omen reports from Kalhu rather than um, Nineveh. His nephew Shumaya petitions the king for the opportunity to, to continue his father Nabu Shumulese's work in Kalhu. Even the disgraced scholar, the Arshipu Uradgula, tells the king after his banishment that he has secreted a precious tablet from the king under Nabu's throne. So if a scholar who has been exiled from court has access to Nabu's inner sanctum, that building must surely be out of royal control. That's not to say that the king was denied access to the Ezida. In the mid to late 8th century, 
it was the building in uh, Calhoun was extended to include a royal visiting suite, complete with mini throne room and twin mini shrines for Nabu and Tashmetu, his um, partner, where the king could oversee the annual Akitu ritual, in which Nabu and Tashmetu's week-long lovemaking renewed the king's right to rule. We don't know how long this particular ritual remained in royal fashion, though Sargon's super Ezida in dur was certainly equipped with an Akitu suite too, as Nicholas Postgate showed in the 1970s. Also, in the early 7th century BC, the monumental loyalty oaths um, sworn to Isa Haddon were stored in Ezida's throne room, documents by which subjects and vassals swore to uphold his doomed plans to divide the kingdom between two favoured sons, the scholarly Ashurbanipal and his jealous brother Shamashamukin. <coughs> Half a century later, in 612 BC, Median raiders smashed them to bits as they tore through Kalhu and devastated the, the very heart of empire itself. By that time, though, I think Assyria was already in terminal decline. Ashurbanipal had never counted on gaining the throne. Indeed, before his nomination as crown prince, he had been training for temple scholarship, dedicated learned, temples, learned tablets to Nabu in Nineveh, Indeed, I strongly suspect that Nineveh's Ezida was the main hangout for the more bookish men of the Assyrian royal family, those that neither expected to inherit the throne nor who had much military aptitude. Meanwhile, Ashurbanipal's brother Shamashimukin was not content just to rule Babylonia. Their four-year war, starting in 652, essentially bankrupted the empire. Although Ashurbanipal won in the end, he had nothing to show for it except more tablets, taken from Babylonian scholars and temples to feed his obsessive acquisition of writings for the palace. For where conquering new territories brought in new resources, the exhausted prophets of Babylonia had nothing more to give. Starting in about 650 BC, as you can see here, Assyrian court culture began to atrophy. One by one, the various genres of official literary production petered out and the once prominent royal scholars vanished from the historical record. Back in Kalhu, Ezida continued to function, but it was no longer a centre of learning. The temple gave out short-term loans, it took in the destitute, but the legal documents recording these transactions are witnessed by a lone priest, the cook, the firewood supplier. Elite Arshipu healers and Umanu scholars have long since vanished. Meanwhile, child king Sin Ishkun presented Nabu's rather strange new temple in Ashur, no tablet room, no Akitu suite, with a meagre gift of a golden bowl and a silver spoon. His inscription makes no mention of Nabu's former role as divine scribe. Just like Nisiba, a millennium before, when Nabu lost his scribal community, he lost his sense of identity too and began to fade away. Fortunately for him though, down in Babylonia, cuneiform scholarship was still going strong in the cities of the newly invigorated independent state, not least in Borsippa, home of his Nabu's Babylonian home. That's the story for another day. Let's finish up back in the present. I've been discussing this evening, I think you'll have seen, not two, but three of my favourite social geographies of cuneiform scholarship. You've seen the, go the goddess Nisiba's trainee scribes in 18th century Nippur, We've seen the scholars of Nabu in 9th or 7th century Assyrian royal cities. But we've also seen a glimpse of my own professional community, one which originated in Warwick, spread out to Oxford, Cambridge and London, 
Philadelphia and Berkeley, Heidelberg and Budapest. Just as Bruno Latour describes, tumorologists and the seriologists exist in tiny clusters, nodes in the knowledge network that spreads its tentacles across the world, communicating abstruse technicalities on clay, in print and online. I've hardly done justice to the many hundreds of kind colleagues and friends who have influenced and stimulated me over the years, just as I've barely done justice to the richness and variety of cuneiform culture. However, there's one vitally important cluster of nodes in my own social geography that I've not met yet mentioned, which matters as much as any of them and is far more fragile. The archaeological sites, the universities and libraries, my brave and obstinately enduring colleagues in Iraq itself. Last night I wrote a long disquisition on why Iraq matters, but then as I was going to bed, I remembered how much I had hated as a child those American t children's TV shows that always ended by, with a moral message about how you should be nice to each other. So I won't harangue you. You know what's happening in Iraq today. You know how devastating it is, and I hope you can see the link with what I've been talking about today. Instead, the happier moral of my story is this, that, that who we work with, who we think with, and where we do that working and thinking fundamentally shape that work and thought. The social and the geographical have enormous explanatory power. They help to account for the appearance and disappearance of particular types of writing, particular ways of thinking, that previously seemed to come and go quite arbitrarily from the historical record. Warwick sent me on the path to ancient Iraq. Oxford equipped me to understand Nisiba and her trainee scribes. Cambridge gave me the tools to make sense of Naboo and his learned men of empire. I can't yet tell you what further exciting avenues UCL will open up for me. It's already welcomed ORAC with open arms, and I have a sneaking suspicion that the city of Ur might be featuring very prominently very soon. But I do know, whatever happens, that I am very glad to be here with all of you, and that you will be truly inspirational. Thank you. So it's my duty, I believe, um, to say a vote of thanks. Is that right? Now, my first language is Dutch, and my second language is American English. So I'm not entirely clear what that means. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you very much, um, Eleanor, for this uh, rather broad overview uh, of uh, knowledge making and knowledge in uh, ancient Mesopotamia, as well as how we deal with that uh, in modern times. Um, what I want to emphasize uh, for you, uh, who are maybe not um, sociologists uh, yourself, is how unusual uh, this breadth that uh, Eleanor has um, laid out for us uh, really is. Uh, when I first met Eleanor, um, it was easy to pigeonhole her. She was a scholar of Babylonian mathematics. And that was a small field, but it was a well-established and known field. An, a subfield within Assyriology. If I had to say now what subfield of Assyriology Eleanor belongs to, um, I would not be able to do that. Um, as she has explained uh, to you herself, uh, she branched out into uh, Sumerian literature, which is an entirely different field within our small community. Um, she went on to study uh, Babylonian uh, collections of texts, or in, 
in um, archaeological terms, uh, assemblages, um, as he did for uh, the famous House F in Nippur and later on for uh, Neo-Assyrian text collections and Neo-Babylonian uh, text collections. Again, there are very few people who would cross over from all Babylonian Sumerian into uh, Neo-Assyrian text material. Um, and I think to, uh, to make this short, because I've been told that I'm standing uh, between you and the reception. Um, now I lost my sentence. I <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's because of thinking about the reception, uh, I think. Um, what was I going to say? Well, let, let's keep it uh, with this then. Um, thank you very much, Arno. <laughs>